0: what's going on guys welcome to the stack strength podcast i'm your host as always daniel DeBrock, and today we are joined by dr ben house uh so first ben thanks so much for jumping on man it's it's been a while we've kind of been chatting but uh i'm glad we're able to finally get you on can uh can you give a little bit of a background of yourself and some of the work that you've been doing for people who maybe aren't familiar with you uh yeah sure i've been a
1: personal trainer since i was like 19 years old uh terrible 19 uh, year old personal trainer. Now I'm 36. So I've been in the space. I was a 13 year old kid who just loved to lift, found the weight room, started bench pressing. Um, and so love everything about the weight room. And then a lot of stuff happened, got my PhD in nutritional sciences from UT Austin, had the opportunity to work at the collegiate level, the pro level, kind of working with different athletes. And then also just a lot of people. And then At UT, I also had the opportunity to run every kind of body composition test you can imagine. Uh, UT has a lot of resources. So we had MRI, DEXA, BOD, POD, ultrasound, any type of body composition metric. We probably had it. We were even doing the early research on 3D camera systems. That was a while ago. And now you kind of see the 3D camera systems coming more mainstream. Um, and so that was my graduate school experience. And then I've been working, uh, in the private sector and just on my, by myself for the last mm, seven years, um, still doing research, still working with people, um, and trying to figure out where, from a nutrition side, what, what aspects can help people get more jacked, stronger. Um, and then I have also some side projects that I, that I work on as far as, and I think that's what you want to talk about here today is kind of long-term weight loss maintenance. What are the keys to maintaining weight loss? How can, how does this really work inside of like an athlete population and, and more of the body composition metrics that coaches will see, like people wanting to potentially lose fat, gain muscle, things like that. Um, and then comparatively to kind of obesity medicine where people are maybe BMIs above 30 and looking to, for health reasons, um, lower their BMI um, into a possibly asterisk more healthful range. Um, does that kind of answer your question then?
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. And uh, so so one of the reasons why I've uh, wanted to have you on is because um, lately I started a new um, like social media posting strategy. So not not even necessarily strategy, but essentially once per week I post a video that's kind of coined controversy of the week, where essentially like I talk about seemingly controversial subjects that really shouldn't be controversial at all. And the whole premise is, you know, in order for us to actually better understand anything these things, in order for us to potentially destigmatize certain situations, in order for us to actually move forward and have like a productive uh, create like productive outcomes, we need to be able to discuss these things and There's been a lot of discussion around obesity, particularly that for me has been pretty frustrating um, Mainly just because it seems like a lot of the people that I've heard talk about it They speak about environmental influences. They speak about all the things that you know influence or impact, you know, obesity and the drivers and and you know what the solutions might be but uh, It sort of seems like a lot of them fall short because they don't necessarily want to talk about you know the other side you know for instance for everyone that you hear people for every every researcher that i've heard say you know oh it's complex blah 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 no one really seems to actually acknowledge the fact that some people not all not maybe not even the most but some people legitimately just are lazy it's almost like that's totally dismissed you know Mm -hmm. and i think you need to acknowledge both sides or or all the various sides of things in order to really have a more nuanced understanding of like how these things actually apply. So when people say environment is an important variable, okay, how much? I'm not necessarily looking for like a quantifiable factor, but like in what ways and is it always that much or is it maybe that much in this case, but in other contexts, it's maybe a less of a barrier to entry or things like that. So um, I've really enjoyed your discussion around obesity. A lot of the articles you've been putting out, a lot of the content on social media, things like that, and so I'm really excited to kind of hear your perspective on a lot of these things and sort of have that more open discussion. And I guess um, one of the things, or I guess uh, if if you think this might be an okay place to start, would be understanding the roles of environment and how that actually influences obesity, um, and then how, like whether or not the environment is actually something that is more of like a static control as opposed to, you know, once you start to develop these skills, does it have the same impact or is that sort of, sort of malleable? Does, it, does that sort of make sense? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sorry, I know it's a
0: Very big kind of open-ended thing, but. Uh,
1: yeah. There's one thing that I can say that does not help is stigma and shame. Like the literature is fairly clear on that, like stigma and shame probably just perpetuate the cycle that we're in right now. Um, And so if we're, I'm, I'm, I'm more of like, okay, if we're going to talk about problems, we have to talk about potential solutions and you can be very pessimistic when it comes to obesity as a disease, as an epidemic, whatever we want to call human beings carrying more adiposity on their frames than we've ever carried before. Uh, whatever we want to call that thing. But I to really to answer your question about environment, I, I would go to children. Um I think that's the easiest place to go. Like if you are a child that is born, if your two parents are obese, your likelihood of being obese is going to be 10 to 12 X. Like it's not your fault. Like you were just, that's where you were conceived. Like the, in, you can't change your intrauterine environment. You can't change the food you were given when you were a kid. And we're, starting to have, and you can then, so this is like, I always play this out because I, I'm a pragmatist. I like okay. So we have the laziness, laziness argument. Okay. So that worked for maybe like first one generation, right? Okay. Well, the parents are lazy. They need to change, but now we're in two or three generations. So like, how are you going to unravel that problem? Like, yes, there's a personal responsibility component. Absolutely. We are, I, I mean, I, I've Talk about motivational interviewing a lot. One of the tenets of motivational interviewing is like we have to. It's it's in our own. It's our responsibility. Like I can help you. I can give you the resources. I can help you acquire the competencies to do these things, right? But ultimately, it is that other person's responsibility. And and so, it kind of in this individual versus social construct type of situation. And I would argue that you can't really bifurcate the two. Um, And in fitness, we've kind of just found a different bubble to live in. And I think a lot of coaches, like they don't maybe function well outside of their social bubble, right? Okay. I have, maybe they're, they're in a, I remember maybe five years ago, it was like, okay, we have paleo ish lift weights bubble and then those people would go back for Christmas and Thanksgiving, and there'd just be all this friction, right? So they actually couldn't live in the other bubble, um, or could it? They could, but it, there was there was stress and and just friction in general. Um, and so I think what if you look at maybe not the quantitative research, but the qualitative research of people who have this experience of being successful at losing long term weight loss long term, one of the things that comes up a lot is like I have reinvented myself. I have changed the very essence of who I am. I have found these new social groups. So when we ask someone to lose weight and keep it off long-term, we're likely asking them to probably make decisions about friendships, about like their life dynamics. Not, I'm not making good or bad here. I'm just like, this is probably the the choices that they're making on some level. Um, Cause it will probably change who they are uh, if they want to be successful long-term. Like you're not, I think we have this idea in fitness of like you're going to do the things you've done the things and now it's going to last forever it does not look like that is the case i mean i'm not saying long term weight loss is impossible it's not it's absolutely possible probably to the tune of you know 30 percent, 40 percent for non-pharmaceutical interventions or non-surgical interventions um that's best case scenario people are doing like a year of behavioral intervention with a uh, team of doctors, um, like psychologists and, and nutritionists. And most people are not getting that type of intervention, they're getting, and so that's in a, like where we have that data is like, uh, we have a fair, fair amount of studies, but we're talking about most likely peer-to-peer interactions and peer-to-authority interactions. So you'd have group classes once a month and then also group meetings. So how we normally think of weight loss interventions, we probably think of them as like coach to client, but it may be that even group interventions perform better than like kind of one-on-one interventions because you do get that peer-to-peer and then social component. Um, And also people kind of sharing their experiences in a peer-to-peer environment and what worked for them. Um, I'm not sure if that completely answered your question, but I I think from an environment, I don't see it as environment versus individual. I see it as like you cannot take one out of the other. Um, And if, as we all know, we all live in multiple cultures. Like we all have multiple cultures that we live in. Um, And so if you want to be successful and you want to be, I guess at a, we'll say like a lower body fat percentage than the average human right now, you probably have made some choices that are anti normal if that helps
0: no absolutely and i love the the basic framework that you set out there especially talking about the whole biopsychosocial aspects and that's actually something that i've become incredibly interested in especially as of late because i wrote a paper last year uh essentially looking into like uh, all of the at least all the ones that i could find all the variables that impact obesity and weight loss and successful weight loss maintenance and like it's crazy you know i was looking at childhood sexual assaults. oh yeah it goes up by 2x if it's been multiple yes. times that it occurred it goes up by four to six x and all these different things and and then like how environment i even thought it was incredibly interesting how environment shifts depending on your skill level so like an example i might give would be um if you have you know an anytime fitness and a bodybuilding gym right across the street you're living in the same general vicinity pretty similar uh you know, environments, but these guys are really hardcore bodybuilders. Now, if the hardcore bodybuilders were to go into the Anytime Fitness, their results would probably slow a little bit because they're not around as many serious people, but I don't think they'd lose it. Whereas if the people who were at Anytime Fitness went into bodybuilding, either they would drop out really rapidly or they would significantly improve their results, right? And so it's like, it's kind of an interesting mix on how environment shifts over time based on skill acquisition, competency, and whole self-determination theory and a lot of other Mm -hmm. things, right? Um, but I really am interested in the mental health factors, and i 'm not sure if this is something that you're comfortable talking about, but um, even like predisposition so you know i've i've read a lot of research that talks about how psychological uh, pathologies or, or different issues can predispose individuals to obesity or there 's a very high correlation in a lot of ways and when it's when the, like the psychological issues are treated, a lot of the times the obesity or the weight or whatever you see a very positive result in terms of them dropping weight and becoming healthy, their biomarkers improve and all of this other stuff. And so I was wondering if you had any sort of uh, background in that, or, or if you could touch on that.
1: Yeah, again, I, I'm going to come. So if someone wants to look up this research, you can just, you know, Google PubMed ACE score, obesity. that's adverse childhood events. Um, and and all, there's, it does look to be causative, right? You can, um, and there's, we can, mechanistic our way into potentially why, or, um, I I don't think that's necessarily fruitful, but I, I think if you look at the, what has popped to be very, very helpful in the obesity literature is kind of acceptance-based techniques, um, which are this idea of contrarian action, or I can I have to accept everything, but that I the best example of this I can give is like I can be thankful for who I am and what's happened to me, but I also can want to be better. Like that's kind of this like this acceptance statement. Um and there's that seems like a dichotomy or a duality there, but it it, it can exist. Like, and that's this idea of contrary. Like, so I can have these feelings, but I can still act in this other way. Um and I, I may be butchering that, but we do have multiple studies that show that. Therapy, some type of I mean there's lots of acronyms I'm not I'm not a therapist. I don't have that degree. Um, I have many friends who are therapists and I um, they tend to be very 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 well good at holding space and being present. So I, I think like there's this there's probably a very there's a big effect, I would say in having someone on your side who's not judgmental and just walking with you on this path as you go along and we have multiple studies now that show that when you combine nutritional intervention with a prototypical nutritionist with also a therapy arm, whether that be CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, or any lots of acronyms if you or acceptance-based therapies, if you combine nutrition with one of those therapies, it tends to work better. Now, inside of means, there's always going to be individuals, right? that who this works really well for maybe there's some individual that it doesn't work well for but i i think if you failed i always bring this back to okay individual story like how can we how can we be pragmatic with this information so if you failed with your prototypical nutrition advice like oh i i constantly fail with macros or something like that it may be good to give yourself another skill set um that could potentially help you on this journey like um, frameworks of cbt can be very very helpful the frameworks of dbt can be very very helpful um, like this chain analysis. Oh, I'm starting to like look at these cause and effects with my life. Oh, I'm using food in this way. Um, and they've even done research on people reading DBT books. And if that can help with um, binge like eating episodes, things like we have to be careful with our words there. Uh, but it looks like even reading the books and like doing the workbooks can help, uh, which is cool because obviously it's it's best probably to have a coach, but even getting these frameworks, like learning in our, in our space, like it'd be kind of like learning how to squat via YouTube versus learning how to squat with a coach. You're probably going to go a lot faster with someone who has their hands on you in person or giving you individualized feedback, but you can kind of figure it out on on YouTube. And and I want to preface like mental health issues are a massive deal. So like you want, if you do have like, diagnosable go see go see a mental health professional but there is a mental health crisis of availability in the united states specifically so like there's not enough mental health providers provide for everything so there is this idea of triaging even in the mental health space of like we need to get the people that really need mental health one-on-one coaching them me- want to mental health one-on-one coaching but then we also need to have tools for maybe people that everyone can benefit from this so there's even literature on like that scaling component in the me- mental health world
0: um can you uh sorry to interrupt, can you um just expand on like CBT and DBT for those people who maybe aren't familiar with those acronyms?
1: Yeah, um so they're related. Uh DBT would be it's a skill based so you're learning skills. Um CBT you're also learning skills. Cognitive and behavioral therapies um it's Coddling of the American Mind has a good, if people want to read that's it's kind of got there's lots of books you can read about CBT, but it's understanding the the ways that your mind will catastrophize, and and you can once you understand like what your mind's doing, you can kind of you can reframe it. You can oh that's what I'm doing right now. So it's it, it, it ha- both all of these have like some level of mindfulness or some level of being the watcher of your thoughts. Um, and so but they're they're good frameworks to. Cognitive behavioral therapy can give you, oh wow, that's that's what I'm doing right now. I'm 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 creating a narrative again and again, uh, right? And then DBT can kind of give you the skills to see that and and kind of reframe that narrative. And there's lots of acronyms. There's always lots of lots of acronyms that that you can that you can find and use um, to to go through these. And in the prologue of the site, deconstruct nutrition, which which is what I write on. Um, we kind of go through in CBT, we go through those kind of those delusions or those distortions of how your mind distorts those.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Um, and so when it comes to, when it comes to, um, discussing obesity, the one thing that I've been trying to do anyways is sort of bridge the gap between, because like, you know, the tough love camp, it's like the the shaming and the guilt and all that stuff, obviously that does not work. If it did, we've had decades for it to work <laughs> and we would probably see a benefit, right? But we're not. But then the other side is like, let's say haze, right? Where they're kind of going a little bit too far in the opposite direction, in my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there needs to be a little bit more of a middle ground on some of these things. And one of the things that I find really interesting is when we start talking about fat shaming and You know, like I was very surprised to find that uh, based on, I mean, I've spoken to several researchers who who specialize in that stuff, and there isn't really a very clear definition in the research. Like the ones that I've seen are extremely broad and include things like, let's say a clinician just literally taking someone's weight, you know, or doing like a test like that. Anything that could subjectively be, uh, cause that experience of of, uh, shame or whatever falls into that category. And I think that that's, you know, it makes sense right now because it's still kind of something that people are teasing out, but at the same time, it obviously can create some problems when we start talking about fat shaming, because now everything falls under fat shaming. And I was actually pretty surprised to to read a paper that found that women, you know, tend to experience a pretty negative, con- or pretty negative outcomes when they when they're fat shamed. But in this particular study, men actually had an inverse relationship. So when they were fat shamed, there was their BMIs actually went down. And part of that to me is, is I would love your feedback on this. But one of the things that to me that might suggest to me is just differences in how men and women potentially internalize uh, their body image. And then also, the difference is maybe like teasing. So these are just potentially biological differences between males and females. So like guys, for instance, uh, it's very common to see guys teasing each other and kind of razzing each other. And that's sort of like that uh, camaraderie building activity, you know, mm-hmm. and I wonder how much of that is, is, is actually that and not necessarily causing shame for them. I don't, I don't know if that makes, does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Um. I don't know that I'm the best person to talk about this, but I, I'll kind of hit what you said in in two parts. So, this I you can again bring this to children, and I think the last name of the author is Robinson. Um, I can I'm looking forward to in, in I've used I've used the quote. I'm, they're good papers to read because I think they challenged your idea of obesity stigma. Um, and so one of the one of the arguments is like whether we should tell children if they're obese or not because children think of obesity kind of how in the language way we think of obesity is like, I am obese. Like, so like the, like English language is like, this is a am of permanence. Right. Um, and and there's just having that label I think is not helpful. Um, so there's just shame even in the label of it. Um, and and it doesn't look to be helpful to like tell like, cause their kids aren't even cognitive yet. Like, Oh God, like that's not, it's, it's not helpful. Like, a kid is probably going to know that they're different than their peers. Like we, they don't need a label that makes them even more different. Um, and people can argue with me if they want to about that. Kids to me are completely different than adult, adults. Like I will bifurcate children over adults. Like kids, the only thing that's probably going to work is going to be the environment. Like they just don't have the cognitive ability. Like they don't need to be put on diets where they're weighing stuff. It's just, it's it's not, it's not going to be helpful. Um, and it's, it's probably going to, ultimately a lot of this research is on the university of missota um I, i've worked with i've worked with project eat uh we use some of their we use some of their surveys when i was at ut uh that's where some of this data comes out but like weight loss attempts in adolescence you can argue reverse causality here but weight loss attempt weight loss attempts in adolescents will probably if anything it's going to increase your risk of weight gain over the long term uh, uh, and so but when we get to adults and and body image and shame again i come back to like problems or solutions like what are what are going to be what are the solutions for for body image generally like you look at resistance training perceived capacity those are all going to have like doesn't matter who you are but if you feel like you are stronger like if you feel like you are you are performing better you will probably elevate your your own interpretation of yourself and your body right like that doesn't have anything to do with weight whatever um and so th- there's there's a lot of things that pop up in the body image literature that have that could also come along for the ride yoga resistance training these movement types can elevate body image um and this is rough estimations and this is people saying it it's around 60 percent of females t- seem to maintain a negative body image and around 40 percent of males uh will admit on surveys that they are maintaining some type of negative uh, body image and if like a lot of positive affirmations, CBT, DBT, all of those things can, can work, um, for body image as well. So I, I think like these skills are not just purely about weight loss. We can use them for other things. Um, as, as far as other people's ability to influence someone else's journey, what you're essentially talking about is negging. Um, like, can I neg you like, oh, you're so fat. Why don't you try harder or something like, like, like that's not even a real neg. Like nags are, oh your biceps look good but there's a little bit of fat over them like that that's like cringy cringy like early 2000 like fitness sales uh like wouldn't it be nice if you could fit in your your, like your swimsuit looks nice but but wouldn't it be nice if you could fit in the other one like just saying that stuff just like makes me like like die a little bit inside um and and so am i ever going to use those techniques with people no that's not my personality i would never use that technique with anyone i would never say that to someone about their body Um, and I don't necessarily think that it's helpful. I've, I do a lot of body composition analysis for my job. And so I have these conversations. I hear people's own shame and guilt about their body, even if they're fucking jacked. Like I hear people like jacked people, like throw a lot of shade at their own body. And I just, I'm just there. I'm just like, okay, this is just a number. How how are we going to like, and I, so I don't even, sometimes I don't even know, like is, is objectively knowing these things helpful. Even like the error rates, like right? um everybody's body fat percentage is what they think it is. Like, and all the measurements that we have, have error and people don't really deal with error very well as individuals. Like, oh, it could be in this window. Um, But I think if we're, thinking of, I always bring it back to health because there's really no, I, that is, if we can bring this conversation, if we can take it away from aesthetics, which I don't think is, if, if you have an aesthetic goal, that's great. of people have them as a motivator, at least. And they're saying they have them as a motivator. A lot of people have how they look as a motivator. That's great. Okay. You want to do that. I don't, I don't need to figure out your why for that. I can talk about weight loss just from a health perspective. And if you're already healthy, that's great. And you want to lose weight still for aesthetics. Fine. Okay, great. But what happens when you lose this weight? If you're not happy, then like, are you gonna be happy at six percent body fat? Are you gonna be happy at five percent body fat? Like, where does it end, right? Because if there's no end and you're never happy, you probably should go see a psychologist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that—that's actually the way we could, as coaches, we can use like, oh, I wonder if seeing someone about this could be helpful. Like, if you've—you've you've lost ten percent, you're—you're—you're you're now a female at sixteen percent body fat, and I wonder if I—your uh, menstrual cycle is kind of being a little bit disturbed. I wonder, I wonder if it might be worth seeing someone. Um, cause that's, that's going to be outside of all of our scopes. But as far as, as far as shaming people into action on obesity, like, I just don't think we need to do it. I, I, I even if it is effective, um, I just, as an adult, like kids are going to be kids like, yeah, like locker room behavior, like kids are dicks, man. They're going to be really mean to each other as an adult. I think I've, I've grown past that behavior. Like I don't need to, I don't need to be a dick to someone to try to make them change. Um, And if someone wants that type of coaching, again, they're probably creating a codependent relationship that they're going to create over and over again. I just want no part of that. Um, As, as a coach, like I don't want to be your authority figure. I don't want to be your right or wrong. I don't want to, that's, that's not what I want to be someone, a Sherpa that can potentially help you on this journey. And right. if you fall if you fall down, we look at like, okay, what what happened? We look at the we look at the causal pathway, like, okay, you fell down again. What happened? How what can we do about that? Um, in a non-judgmental manner. Whereas otherwise we just create a power dynamic and then, you know, I'm their I'm their parental figure. And that's not what I want to be. I wanna be your coach. I wanna yeah. help you not need me.
0: No, totally. And so I guess just to clarify, because that that was my mistake, I probably Maybe wasn't as as clear as I could have been when I'm talking about like fat shaming again there's kind of lack of a sort of an issue with the terminology there, but Sort of like in my gym for instance um, I'm I'm cutting right now. So I'm 248 at the moment, and I'm one of the smallest guys at the gym Everyone there is massive everyone. There is insanely strong. So it's a very high-level powerlifting club, right? And so there's kind of like a little joke around there where it's like, "Oh, if you don't at least weigh two sixty five then you're not even a real man, right and it's like it's it's like playful teasing among friends, you know what i mean
1: yeah, but how, i'll I'll interject how many people do drugs because of that
0: uh most of them are natural actually
1: over two sixty five as men
0: yeah.
1: the average guy's five nine like a buck eighty five no
0: these these are not these are not small dudes they're like yeah i'm saying i'm saying saying the
1: average i'm saying the average dude in the world is five ten one so all
0: all of this is totally like it's it's not real it's just it's just for teasing each other that's it right it's not actual beliefs and so i'm not even saying that it's like good or bad right i was just wondering your perspective and so if that if that's what you think and that's that's totally cool i was wondering if that maybe would have this because to me, that still falls under that classification, the broader umbrella of like the shaming aspect, right where you know now they're all like teasing me because I'm like skinny or whatever, but I'm still like almost two fifty and and they're teasing me right <laughs> and so but it's like I don't really take it personally, but then what I will say actually is probably everyone there does kind of have body dysmorphia because like. I'm like, "Oh man, I'm so skinny." And I go around outside and everyone thinks I'm really big, but I don't see it. I look at myself and I'm like, "I'm the same size as you." And they're like, "No, you're not. You're crazy. You're way bigger." And then in there I just feel really small. Now, it doesn't it doesn't affect my quality of life at all. It's just sort of like a a thing that's there, you know? But it, I don't know. I guess it's just kind of interesting to to tease out those details. I definitely get what you're saying, though. And it probably probably isn't productive. I would agree with that. I was just wondering if maybe it's like, is it destructive? But I guess that would be maybe like a case by case basis. I don't know. Or like, but or if there is like some sort of like a net neutral effect for some individuals.
1: People are choosing to be involved in this culture. They're choosing yeah. to be there.
0: Um, yeah, that's, that's a good point.
1: So it's not like, it's not like they're being put in this environment against their will. They're actively choosing again and again to be there. Um, I think that in those environments, you will probably have like, you're going to get really, really good power lifters, right? Cause you're selecting for it. Um, you're going to have this environment that is breeding it. And I, I, I go back to like, okay, almost. It was over 70% of males in the heavyweight category for Olympic lifting had NAFLD, right? So I could probably non-alcoholic fatty liver. So like I I could, I could probably go around in that gym and and like, we automatically like, okay, there's probably a cost to that being that big. Right. Um, And that's not what, that's not what is. So the pinnacle, correct. I'm just going to ask questions because maybe I don't know the pinnacle of like the trophy in that environment is how much weight you can lift. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like it's, so having more mass is always gonna benefit you right um and so it makes sense that that's kind of the standardized group behavior and and that's gonna be kind of put on a pedestal right um and i would i would guess in that in unless people are very tall how tall is the average person there six three six four six five like
0: like six two six one for the guys yeah something like that they're they're pretty big
1: I mean, so to put this, so I'm, I'm, I'm annoying, right? So I'm just immediately going to, I'm, I'm immediately just going to go to numbers. So I would guess that most everyone there is in the 99th percentile for muscle mass. And then they're just making fun of each other. So it's kind of like, if you, if you objectify it, it's just kind of silly. Right. Uh, It'd be like a bunch of people who are 5% body fat, just like calling each other fat. It's like, what are you, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, So it's, it's all relative, but let's, let's do the math. Um, and I think that's probably like when you're getting into the higher levels of sports performance, like you're literally talking about 1% can separate. Like this is the the strongest guy versus the hundred strongest guy are still probably in the 1% of the entire population. Right. Um, yeah. So, so they're let's say, let's say the average avatar there is. Six two, six, maybe we'll go. We'll go on the higher end. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give it some better. So we'll go six five. What would you like? Two fifty? Like two fifty? How much? How much does the average person weigh in this place?
0: Yeah, if you were to take averages, two fifty, two sixty five.
1: Yeah. All right, and then what would you say their body fat percentages? Um, twenty to twenty
0: five, probably for most people.
1: I, so, so I would say they're probably objectively over the range for where male male wants to be from a health perspective. Uh, oh, maintaining yeah, that sure. amount of aspect. they have a lot of muscle mass. They have a lot of muscle mass, which will obviously muscle mass is is a kind of a sink for glucose. So they'll probably be metabolically flexible, especially if they're exercising things like that. Um, but the average effort for my if we if we just go off those numbers is going to be a twenty six to twenty seven um to put if people don't intuitively know what a fat free mass index means like most it was believed that 25 is what is potentially possible um naturally that's bullshit we know like if you look at offensive linemen in the nfl you can get up in the 28s 30s um sumo wrestlers have the highest fat free mass indexes. so like an average of 26 could be 100% could be natty but you're self selecting for a very very yeah. small population there that I think would self-select for themselves. Like if you want to be the strongest person in the city in the country, you're probably willing to move to a new gym to be around other strong people to get those vibes. Right. Um, and I don't know if that's what's happening there, but it makes sense that people in that atmosphere would rib you because you're probably poking at something that they don't intuitively like in themselves. Um, and, and so I've, i have I've done a lot of this internal work. Like I've, yeah. and not just, most of us are, most of us have deep seated inadequacies and we haven't looked at them. Right. Um, and, and so when I, when people throw shade, they're probably throwing shade at something that they don't like in themselves. So they probably don't like pitching their fat. Um, they probably feel a little bit chubby, but they're willing to take the heat because they can deadlift 800 pounds. Um, and so they're all, they're already creating this narrative inside of their head. You're just poking at some, at the aspect that they don't like, mm-hmm. um, as you cut. Um, and so maybe that's not a, is that a normalized behavior? Because I feel like that has to be a norm. like people in powerlifting have to cut unless you're a heavyweight, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's fair. I mean, I, I find a lot of these like little nuanced intricacies, like so interesting because, so are, are are there differences in terms of, like, are there cultural differences that we see in terms of people's, um, I guess, internalization of, of their body image? Because, so for me, like, my grandma is just like this 98-year-old, like, old-school European woman. And, like, when we came to Canada, the culture is very different here, you know? And so, I mean, like, when I saw, this was several years ago, but I had a, like, gorgeous girlfriend walked in she i introduced her to uh to my grandma and then she sees me and like i've got all these tattoos and i was about 290 back then so I was, I was i had a lot of fat and she's like oh daniel my boy why are you so disgusting and she like puts her hand on my stomach and she's like no no woman's gonna love you and i'm like you just met my girlfriend what are you talking about you know and the thing is like culturally that's that's kind of normal it's almost like like in south america how they like call you like a uh, gordo or like fat but it's mm-hmm. like it's like of a term of endearment almost and so i was wondering i'm not sure if you know but are there differences that we see cross culturally where it's not a big deal here or is it just kind of ubiquitously uh, a big deal and is the main thing that changes whether or not it's perceived as being like a shameful thing if that makes sense
1: yeah, I have like I have struggled I'm just going to be completely honest. I have struggled with this idea of that term of endure in Spanish culture of of that and then feeding children, you know, ice cream on top of that. Like I, I as a nutrition person, I struggle with that. Like I I, I do struggle watching that. Like okay, like cuz that child is now okay, they're the risk in that culture for, you know, diabetes, for all these things that are objectively harmful right um is is increasing um so are there cultural influences on our body absolutely all are there like there's nowhere around it right um are there going to be different cultural differences where you are yes we know every community has different cultural ideals of bodies and beauty and and all those things um I'm sure. I'm sorry your your grandma said that to you when you were probably at the height of your powerlifting.
0: Um, that,
1: that sucks. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's
0: fine. That's fine. I I um, I don't really take that stuff personally. I'm pretty disconnected from that stuff. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean. I mean. Still, the, just having a loved one say something like that. I mean, it. it we can all like brush it off. Um, and and my grandma had my grandma had a severe eating disorder. Right. Um, she she was obvious. It was fairly obvious. Like looking back, I had no idea. I had I had no idea, but like she had digestive distress all the time. Like she was, she was very light. She made a lot of jokes about other people's weight, right? All the time. She was commenting about other people's weight. And, and so she was really just showing this, this insecurity that she had all the time. And I think she probably did have anorexia most of her, most of her adult life. Um. And that sucks for her and and so but as' I'm, I wasn't gonna change her and and so I think that what you said was perfect like you just take that in all that that was said all right cool that sucks now what's 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 the what's the next thing um, and so to answer your question about the cultural aspect of obesity, I think that there's a to get to the heart of this issue, like fat shaming versus fat acceptance, which I think is where we're going, right? Fat acceptance versus fat shaming. I see both of them as dangerous. I see fat acceptance as also dangerous um, because, and, and, and I think the cut through this is always health because health can be objectified. Beauty, all these other fat, not fat, those are those have gradients of culture in them. They have like they all have like how do we define these things? But health is definable. Hemo and A1C, I can go measure that. Like your response to glucose, that that can be measured. Um, so health can be measured, lipids, all these things can be measured. And that to me is the breakthrough for all of this is health. Um, because you could you can move to a you could be at a normal body whatever. And you could move somewhere else and you could be giant. Like I could move to Sri Lanka and I think I'd be pretty massive, right? Like as a human. Like I moved to Costa Rica and I'm one of the bigger people around. I go back to Texas and I'm one of the smaller people around. Right. So you're like literally my bigness is dependent on where I live, where I am in the world. Like I could just go, <laughs> I want to be absolutely yeah. enormous and just you know move somewhere else. Um and, and so I, I think what cuts through this is going to be measures of health. Um, and that's what I come back to again and again. And body composition is not a direct measure of health, neither neither is muscle mass. The only direct measures of health are, are measures of health. Um, and, and so that's where I think talking about type two diabetes risk is much more of an in for me than even talking about obesity. Cause I don't even need to talk about obesity. I can just talk about type two diabetes and, and blood sugar control. And then I can get into, okay, if your BMI is this, you have this percentage of, of likely being quote unquote, metabolically healthy, right? And here's the cost of that. Um, so you don't even need to talk about the other things. You can just talk about health um, and all the other th- things can... BMI does not stratify where fat is stored. It's only a measure of like how much mass you have. Like even me, I'm on a cut too right now. Like even me on a cut, like I am on an ultrasound and uh every all of them i'm under five percent body fat right now i i have visible abs like i i'm i have striations going none of that they're all inaccurate at that point i have quad i have quad delineation like i have striations in my lats on my chest like um from a bodybuilding perspective i'm doing this experiment because i i just want to experience it not because i like i just want to experience it for a variety of reasons um and and so um I am still just in a normal BMI. Like I just, at five, I just squeezed into a normal BMI. Finally, I've been in an overweight, overweight BMI since I was, and and I would guess that most of the people in that gym that you're talking about, uh, yeah, they're gonna be obese. So most of the people right. in that gym will be obese. Um, so.
0: Yeah, I was, I was morbidly obese. I was, I think like a 42 or something like that. Like I was very high. Um, Previously now now I'm actually getting like now. I actually have abs and stuff like that So it's it's all right, but still probably have another like maybe 15 pounds to lose before I'm like about 10% Um, but uh, but yeah, so This has been really interesting. So one of the things that I want to know is as well is like um, What are some of the opportunities for pushing the conversation forward and just being a little bit more productive and how people are, I guess, uh, addressing obesity and overweight in general, whether like, because mm-hmm. even though I coach primarily strength athletes and bodybuilders, bodybuilders during the off season, I don't do any contest prep stuff. Um, there's often a performance uh, benefit to, to being leaner, to being in better mm-hmm. health, to improving the cardiovascular health and just certain certain biological markers and things like that. Um, So we talk a lot about that, but we talk about it from a performance lens, which I definitely think makes it a little easier to discuss these things because it's like, hey, this will make you a better athlete, not this will make you a better person or anything like that. But um, I've definitely noticed that, uh, or actually it was someone who pointed it out to me uh, because when I'm coaching clients, I have like a very client-centric approach. And even though like I'm very rough around the edges sometimes, when I'm with clients, it's like very different. I'm all, everyone's always like, "Wow, you're like really soft spoken. You're really this. You're really that," which is very different from maybe how I coach myself or how I internalize things. And so, um, I agree with everything that you're saying. But then one of the things that I find, and this is sort of a, a drawback of my own, is when I'm coaching myself, when I'm handling my own training, when I'm looking at my own physique, I tend to be hypercritical of a lot of things. And so, um, in terms of mm. I guess sort of bridging that gap between being like, "Hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing this stuff," you know, so it would probably stop. Versus, you know, like what's what's producing the result? Hmm. You know, what, never mind. <laughs> I'm gonna scratch that because I don't think I don't know that I have a, a very clear question with that. So I'll just kind of move on. I, I'm sorry, my I just have so many different ideas based on everything you've been saying, but I guess we'll just stick with uh, what are some of the biggest opportunities that we have to move forward in terms of actually being able to understand the situation better and then help more people more effectively.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna throw an olive branch out there. I mean, in, in, we're always gonna have shit that we hate about our bodies. Like, it's every one of us listening to this, you're always gonna have something that you hate about your body. Like, it's never gonna go away. Like, you're always gonna look at something and be like, I don't like that. That's not, like, that's, that's probably part of the human condition. And that's why I think acceptance And like, can you change it? Do you want to change it? What's the price to change it? Right. Um, Like even, even me right now, like I have, I, so I think we can actually have, we can have a real conversation about this because not a lot of people want to have real conversations about this. We just want to be like, oh, you're going to be happier if you have a six pack. I don't think that's true. I don't think you will be happier if you have a six pack. I think like, I think it's just another thing you're going to go and get. Right? And, then, and then, then you're going to get there. You'd be like, Oh, you're going to find something else to hate. Right? <laughs> so, so I, I think, yeah, you could have this, this prideful moment, but then, then if, if it's not, if it's not grounded in, okay, what's the cost of this, what's the price. And, and so that's why I come back to health because on this journey, on my, like why I'm doing this is because I'm going to go get lab work and I would, I will make the, i would bet a lot of money that i have like i can wear a sweatshirt in 100 degrees right now like like and not sweat like i my hands are always cold like i know all of this stuff right like
0: so there's there's gonna be a annoying.
1: yeah yeah
0: i reached that point too i'm not as lean as you by any stretch but i'm definitely the cold extremities is super annoying
1: yeah so there's a there's a price there's always a price everything has a price right and i think that price of being too lean and, and Eric Holmes and I have written about this a ton is that you're going to get to a point where you're in like probably a non-adaptive state. Like you're, you could get GI, like just being in a low energy state. And, um, and so why I'm doing this is like this self-experimentation of like, cause I, I do think that we have a false idea of what is sustainable on the lower end of leanness. So right now in the fitness culture, because of social media primarily, and it was even before social media, it was just magazines. It's just now it's in your face and it's probably in your face from people that you know, not just like celebrities and magazines. It's actually people that you probably know or have some connection with. Um, and so I think the idea of where we think of health from a leanness is skewed. Um, like we think that you need to have visible abs to be healthy. I will make the, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You can be healthy and have no abs. Like 100% can make that argument, right? So I think that the line is is far too low on where we think health exists. And then on the flip side, I, you made the haze is healthy at every size. Healthy at every size, we 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 definitely take haze out of context. Haze isn't saying that people can be healthy at every size. They're ad. It's more of an advocacy thing for we want people to have access to health at every size. Um, not they're not like so that's a it's kind of not giving hazy and I'm not, I'm not coming at you at all. I'm saying Mm -hmm. like, this is, this is something that I've done in the past is, is just like, okay, it's not saying that people can be healthy at every size. That's, that's probably objectively going to be very, very hard. Um, I think that people who are, um, have larger amounts of adipose tissue might be able to be transiently metabolically healthy with a lot of exercise. Um, But then as soon as like, for instance, sumo wrestlers, uh they may be able to be healthy, they are healthy while they're sumo wrestling, but almost as soon as they stop sumo wrestling, they're immediately like type two diabetic almost. Mm-hmm. Um so so the exercise is buffering against them. It's, so my analogy is like muscle is is kind of the sink. So these these people have a lot of muscle. think about O Lyman in the United States in, in American football. Um they have a lot of muscle mass so they have a big sink for glucose exercise is kind of the drain and then the spigot is is carbohydrate consumption or the faucet is carbohydrate consumption. And so if people have a large, large amount of muscle mass, and then they're exercising for six to seven hours a day in training, they're, they're able to dissipate a lot of that glucose. Right. But as soon as the drain gets plugged, they stop exercising, they start overflowing and then they're going to get those, the metabolic disruptions. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think as a, as a culture in and of itself in the fitness space, I think health, again, the quantification of health is what gets us out because we generally think that to be healthy is probably an, it depends on your measurement of health. So it gets complex and people like nuance. I would guess that at very low to a point, once you get an essential body fat ranges, I still think you're probably, you could get an immune response that would kick things off. But for most, for in most realistic settings, other than like stage level bodybuilding conditioning, People are probably going to be more metabolically healthy on paper the leaner they are. But at some tipping point, you're going to get thyroid dysregulation. You're going to get hormone dysregulation. You're going to get probably immune dysregulation, bone, GI. You're going to get a lot of dysregulations that are going to start. Um, And so I'd make the argument that for most meals, probably, and I'm not really worried about percentages here, it's probably relative. So I think the body defends kind of its relative, however much fat it had uh, to where it was and And so m- for you, you were two ninety, right? so, if we just objectify your case, and I don't think you'll mind this, so the highest you weighed was two ninety right mm-hmm. and now you're two fifty,
0: yeah, yeah, a little under,
1: so that's forty pounds, so that's that's fifteen percent weight loss, so you're maintaining around fifteen percent weight loss at the back of my envelope math is is maybe a little bit more um and And so you're kind of in the window of long-term weight loss right now. And you're, Mm -hmm. you're not 9% body fat. We would guess, I don't know your body fat percentage, right? But you're, you're already starting to get that symptomatology of your body defending. And so I would, I would be curious, like if you got out of an active energy deficit and got into energy maintenance, would that cool off for you? Like would those, would, would those symptoms dissipate? Uh, And I do think that that's relative. And so that's my hypothesis. So I'm cutting Then I'm going to, I'm probably going to. Come back up, and then I'm gonna find like whatever sub, probably eight, and then I'm gonna for numbers here. So, let because I always like to quantify, um, as people can say. So, if we put you in here, let's just do rough metrics for you. How tall are you? Uh,
0: 183 centimeters, what is that? Oh, or like centimeters. Like, it's like six one. You're so,
1: coming to America. What is that in America? Or six,
0: six one, like six one. <laughs>
1: uh, just give it to but me, in
0: centimeters, six one. Yeah. Uh, so in
1: your 250 and well, just give me like a rough estimate of your body. Health. Like, what do you think body fat percentage is never good, probably you
0: like you? 14%, something like that. Like I can see quad separation. I have separation in my muscles and most of my muscles, my back is very lean, huh? which usually is the last thing to lean out. And so, uh, I'd say about, about 14%. Okay,
1: we'll, we'll, we'll go there. So your FMI is 28.4 naturally. Congratulations. You are in the 0.1%. If that is, if that is anywhere near correct, you have have a gargantuan amount of muscle. Uh, And, and and so your, uh, if we look at energy availability, which is this quantification of potentially energy availability is the amount of calories that you would need for every kilogram of fat-free mass. So we're going to go back into uh, international units here. Uh, And, and so, Thirty looks like you d- get disruption of hormonal access for females. So under 30 grams of 30 kcal per kilogram of fat-free mass. People can do the math on this. You can also search Mountjoy, Locke, any of those researchers in the energy availability red ass, which is relative energy deficiency in sport. And you can kind of look this stuff up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it looks like you get 40 to 45 is kind of this green light window of energy availability and so you have to add exercise back to energy availability because energy availability like if you're doing a ton of exercise you would want to add that back and so for you at this your energy availability at 45 with so remember you're having to add your exercise calories back in is 4,398
0: kcals. oh yeah so no, you're, i'm eating close to like 3,000
1: so you are eating so let's let's calc- again we can calculate this all out so equals so people are seeing how annoying I am. Um, 3,000 divided, because I don't want to play in subjectivity. Uh,
0: yeah. I also have a very active lifestyle, so like I, on average I'm hitting about 17 to 18,000 steps a day plus training five days a week.
1: Without training yeah. at 3,000 kcals your energy availability is 30.7. Yeah. So Now I'm going to minus the amount of calories that you would think you expend with exercise. So we'll do, I'll give you like a, I'll give you 400. Like I'm guessing you're going to burn more than that, but we'll just go 400 just to be charitable. Um, Your energy availability right now is, is I would guess sub 27, sub 26, 25. We, it looks like we get all this dysregulation in males somewhere in that range. We don't necessarily, we don't have as much data as female. We have more d- data in this in females than males. Males probably don't defend to the same extent that females um, defend. Um, but you are in a low at EA. So what we don't know in the literature is if at your current 250, if I bring you back up, 240, going to 40, gonna be like 4,400 plus, probably going to be 48, 4900. So at 250, if I bought you up to 4,900 and you are weight stable, do all of those signals to your brain of this low energy state, do all of those turn off? And the answer to that is we just don't know. And it's going to be very individual, individually variable, but we can't measure these things objectively. And that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and I think you can objectively measure like, okay, where's my lower threshold from a body composition standpoint and, and not in an active diet. Cause an active diet is going to confound whether, cause you want to be back in energy balance probably for a significant amount of time. Re- people would call this recovery diet, not reverse dieting people, are, the terminology we can argue about it. But I think the biggest thing is like the diet after the diet. So you've been successful cutting up congratulations. Fantastic. Shred it outside your mind at an F of a mind like I'm gonna of mind that is amazing, right? Like I only know one person who has an FFMI naturally of over 28. And I know they're natty uh mm-hmm. lifetime, and I only know one of those people's. Um
0: uh, oh, I'm I'm not natural. I, I I'm on hundred and twenty-five uh megs of test right now. Uh,
1: okay, so yeah, there's so there's 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 some TR. So you're in this scenario, you are masking um you are masking the down regulation of testosterone so if you weren't on trt i could i would bet more money than i wouldn't bet that your testosterone would be tanked in this active diet phase Mm -hmm. um thyroid can still probably get tanked so thyroid generally tanks out first free t3 is probably the first one that tanks out um we we know that of even in females getting their periods back after dieting, uh, watching kind of total, total T3, which is a, which is your active thyroid hormone, um, maybe a way to objectify that. Um, and so, so that's, that's the situation that we're in. And I do think that people who are using edgeogenous hormones can probably go lower. Um, I'd make the argument that the body has way more feedback loops than just testosterone to know that shits hit the fan um, and it doesn't have enough resources. Like we have Mm – you have sensors in your GI tract that know whether you're eating or not. Like the body has so many ways to know whether it's starving. Um, And so the body knows. Uh, And then it can shut all that stuff down at the level of the brain. And then you also start to get like sickness behavior, which is like self-isolating behavior, um, which is what we see and a lot of people who get super shredded. So I don't know if that was helpful, but... Uh,
0: no, absolutely. I mean, it was really interesting. And you're saying that the lower end is 30 uh, kcals per, per kilogram?
1: Yeah. So for it looks like physiologic uh, like physiologic systems are disturbed for females under... and We have lots of gradation studies um, mm-hmm. in females. It looks like 30 kcals per kilogram of fat-free mass is where you get a lot of disruption and you get into this red S or relative energy deficiency in sport area um, which has a lot of literature um behind it and what we and so what we don't know is these kind of there's two competing signals here one is body fat loss and then the other is an an active energy deficit so those are two those are two signals so mm-hmm. body fat, we can talk about leptin, but there's probably even more. There's way more hormones and, and things. It's way more complex than just leptin, but leptin causes kind of gives us a good idea. So as you lose body fat, leptin is going to go down. And that's a signal to your brain to, that it wants to get leptin back up. Right. So you have this lipostat hypothesis. You have a muscle stat hypothesis. Here's lots of like stat hypothesis. And then you have this active deficit. Um, it looks like just an active, for instance, um, long line at all the best recomp paper, the best date, like the best recomp results that we have in the published literature, uh, males were, mm, I think there were a hundred, 110 keys on entry. Maybe, maybe it was just hundred keys on entry. Um, and so they lost about 5% of their body fat. They went from like 23 to 18% body fat and they were at an energy availability of around 25 if my back of the envelope math is right. And their horm- their these guys are all n- natty. Their testosterone went from 500 to 107, and that's in those four weeks. So mm-hmm. they were they it, that was that's kind of they were they had ton they had they had a relatively a lot of body fat on board. Body fat wasn't the signal. They weren't into essential body fat ranges that but just that acute energy deficit drove growth hormone down, um, gro- drove IGF one down, drove testosterone down. Just that acute deficit but they still managed to gain 2.5 pounds of lean body mass and lose like around 10 pounds of fat in those four weeks. Right. So you can argue the, really what we need is the study after the study. We need to know, like, if you brought those cats back up to, you know, their energy availability of 40 to 45, do those things normalize? Um, And my guess would be maybe my, maybe on an individual level. I don't, I don't know. And I, but I, that's the data that you want if you're going to do the diets. Mm
0: -hmm. Awesome, man. Um, So we kind of covered everything. This is, this is actually a very self-serving episode. (laughs) I'll be, I'll be honest. We just kind of took it all over the place because um, like I said, honestly, I found a lot of your writing very, very interesting and really complimentary in terms of, um, sort of balancing out some of the things that uh, that I look at um, when, when coaching clients. I don't really have a lot of like weight loss clients anymore. When I first started, obviously, that was the majority. Now, almost exclusively, it's performance-based athletes. So a lot of the issues just are not the same, even if we are dealing with weight loss or weight manipulation. So it's really interesting to kind of hear that perspective and and sort of be involved in a little bit more of the <laughs> – understand a little bit more about what's involved in terms of like, uh, the, the actual treatment side of things from, from your perspective and your own experience. So, uh, where can people find you, Ben?
1: Uh, yeah, you can find me at deconstructnutrition.com is where I put out most of my writing. Um, and then at drbenhouse on Instagram, those are, those are the places to find me.
0: Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Uh, thank you so much for jumping on, Ben. I really appreciate the chat and it was uh, super interesting.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.